11, <coughs> 4, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, and we have a uh, kind of a model for them. And I think he's following up on that uh, uh, request with some further instruction about prayer, encouraging us to pray. So, chapter 11, verses 5 to 13. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight, and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he, or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Alright, um, so he's got this uh, scenario he sets up. You've got a friend, um, and he goes uh, uh, to, to this guy at midnight and asks for what? Some bread. Some bread. That seems like an odd hour to ask for bread, don't you think? What was the deal? And travelers came in. Yeah, and you know, they didn't do as much back then with like uh, hotels and places like that to stay. It'd be much more common to stay with somebody. And we had this traveler, you know, stopped in rather late. And what was the problem? No food. And, you know, they become in hunger. You know, the first order of business would be to set a good meal on the table. And where did bread come in at? That's like the basis of the whole meal. And especially, apparently, for them, it was kind of the knife and fork of the meal. It's what you'd use to kind of gather up your food on your plate and, you know, kind of eat it with almost the bread. You know, every culture kind of has its own way of doing that. It's fascinating to me how Brazilians eat. They eat with their fork and knife. They use both. Their knife is drawing the food over to pick it up with the fork. You know, that's that's the way they do it. And uh, so they give you a knife even if you have nothing to cut. Because they all use a fork and a knife. You know? Uh, we don't do it like that. And so, from what I've read, they used the bread. You know, that's kind of what you had to have to kind of gather the food together. And, of course, you'd eat it as well. But... Uh, so this guy was in a bind. He didn't have any food. He didn't have any bread. The guy came to him late. And he was, you know, hungry. And it was kind of an embarrassing situation. Um, you know, it must have been barging in on his friend at midnight. You know, I mean, really? Who would you do that to? Unless, you know, their house was on fire or something that way. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of bold. You know, would you have had the nerve to do that? Now... How did it go when he came to his friend at midnight asking for some bread? First not so good. First not so good. Because my friend was like, dude, it's midnight. Yeah. I'm in bed, the door's locked, I'm not getting up. Yeah, it's too late, you know, come back tomorrow. You know? <laughs> That's not the bottom line of the story though, what ended up happening. Kept asking him he got what he wanted. Yeah. Now, if a selfish <coughs> sleeping man can be won by insistence, how much more a bountiful and generous uh, father who wants to bless us? You know, um, he realizes, I think, in his annoyance, that it would be easier just to give the guy what he wants than to keep having to sleep disturbed by the guy banging on the door or whatever. You know, so he didn't really do it because he liked the guy. He didn't do it for friendship. He just did it to, you know, be able to kind of be left in peace. So... The point is, he'd do that 
we can have confidence that God will listen to and hear our prayers. You know, we shouldn't be afraid to present our request to God if an irritated person will even respond to boldness and insistence. Then how much more the Lord? And then that's what he goes on to say. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened. And God, you know, if your children ask you for a present, you're not going to give them a look-alike that is worthless. You know, they ask you for bread, you won't give them a stone. They ask you for an egg, you won't give them some kind of a scorpion, will you? I mean, something that kind of looks like it, but that's really detrimental. You give good gifts to your children. Are we more kind and generous than God? No. What will he do for his children? So what do we learn from this? What do you think our bottom, what, what should our takeaways be? Keep more bread on hand? Yeah, make sure you got plenty of bread. <laughs> well, first of all, God is just more just and generous than man. Okay, we, we should see God as loving more than man does. Um, that's really comforting. I mean, sometimes I've made the point to people, you know, I really love you, but the truth is God loves you a lot more than I do. That's true, always. That's really amazing. What else? If what, if what we ask God is good, then we shouldn't be afraid to ask him for it. How should we ask? If it's his will. Okay, that that's true. How else should we ask? Persistently. Persistently. When we, when we need it, I mean, in the sense of, it's midnight and it's inconvenient to go to the neighbor and say, "Hey, I need some bread." Yet that's when you need it. So, if you need something from God, you don't have to wait until Sunday, or Wednesday, or the morning, or whatever. It's <coughs> open at all times. So to speak. Yeah, great point. So, shouldn't that make us more prayerful? I mean, why wouldn't we be talking to God more and asking more and and pouring out our heart to Him more? And what about this? When you ask God for things, how does it how does it how does it look? You know, do we do like this? Do we have kind of a shopping list? It's like, God, let's see, I need two dozen this and, you know, half a can of that. And, you know, you just kind of go through the list and hear, hear God. What's what's wrong with that approach? Or what's, what's inadequate about that approach? Well, I mean, it's kind of the image of the vending machine God. Okay, I'll ask for this and then I'll ask for this. and But it's not... I need I need three loaves of bread so that I can feed someone and offer comfort to them and and please God let this be which is what this guy does here. Yeah. He doesn't just say please give me three loaves of bread. He says give me three loaves of bread because and he gives the reasons. I don't know. I mean, uh, Caleb, you're the youngest. Do you ever ask your parents for anything? Do you, if it's something that you really want and you're not sure they're going to give you, do you, when you ask them, kind of give them the reasons why you think it'd be a good idea? Why? Because if I don't, then they don't really have any reason to get it. Right. So you try to persuade them. Shouldn't we do that with the Lord more? You know, I, I think, you know, let's have boldness to pray a lot. And let's pray, you know, and explaining to God, this is this is what I'm asking. Here's why I'm asking it. You know, again, more authentic praying. It's not just giving them a shopping list. It's talking and saying, "Look, this friend came and you know, and whatever." Uh, I think I think just much more focus on our dependence on God and on asking Him, and continue to ask and. Until he hears us, you know, not giving up. Um, thoughts and comments. I did have a question. It does not say specifically that he kept asking, other than the word persistence. <clears throat> yes. And okay, this this Bible has a note which says 
his persistence, i.e. the persistence of the one asking for bread. However, the word may mean shamelessness. So some understand this to mean that the man being asked for bread will give it to avoid the shame of being known as inhospitable. Could, is, is that it's, that's not out of the question. I don't think it's unbalanced. Probably quite as good. Okay. Uh, that is a, the, there's a lot of people who think that, but I think it's probably more reasonable to take it as the attitude of the one doing the asking. I think that's unbalanced better, and his audacity and persistence. I mean, the fact that the guy says no and then doesn't to me, is an indication in and of itself that the guy didn't just go away and be quiet. You know, that's the reason why he finally came in, is because he wanted to shut the guy up. So I think persistence is a reasonable translation in the context. If you wanted to say audacity or shamelessness, I think that's perfectly fine too, but I think it's better taking that as the man who's doing the asking. And you have the other example of the woman and the judge. Right, in Luke 18. Same. Yes. <clears throat> so that would make this the same type of a idea. Similar, yeah, similar story. Whereas the other, I don't know if you... I mean, I guess... It, yeah, the other just doesn't seem to me to be as, you know, fit as well. Uh, uh, but I did, I know there are several who take it that way. Because I had never noticed that it didn't say... And then the guy asked again and knocked on the door and woke up the baby and finally, <coughs> you know, that kind of a... Right. And and also the fact that he said, I can't get up and give you anything, that kind of is the end of the story, unless the guy asks again. Exactly, precisely. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, you, otherwise it'd be over. Yeah. He's yeah. like, oh, I got to feeling guilty and got up anyway. <laughs> yeah. Chase the guy down the driveway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Throwing bread at well, him. Come on, no, we've got it now. The bread and the salad and then... Yeah. Alright, other thoughts? Well, Jesus is uh, with a variety of people over these next several sections. Here he was with the, the disciples, you know, but now you see him with uh, with his enemies and the situation here, which is rather... Interesting. So 14 to 26. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was, when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought again is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they be your, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he, but when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. What verse did you say? Twenty-six. Okay. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man. He goes through dry places, seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Okay, so Jesus cast out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, what did the mute man do? spoke, which was the amazing thing. And the crowds were amazed, but there were some enemies who said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And that's a serious accusation. You know, it's not uncommon for men to resort to slander when they don't really have anything else that they can do. And casting out demons was probably one of the most 
um, persuasive uh, credentials of Jesus. He gained a lot of followers by his ability to cast out demons like that. And so by accusing him of doing it by the power of Satan, <laughs> they're potentially turning a tremendous asset into a liability for Jesus. That was pretty. That was a pretty brilliant maneuver on their part. And uh, so Jesus gives them a pretty thorough answer to this this kind of accusation that they were thinking of. At this point, they aren't even saying it, uh, or, or at least uh, he's answering their their thoughts in verse seventeen. And uh, he says, you know. You don't fight against yourself. You know, Satan doesn't fight against himself. You know, that'd be foolish. You know, that'd be like committing suicide. You know, why would Satan be at war with his own demons? You know, so, I mean, that doesn't make sense. You know, Satan wouldn't fight himself. That's his first point. But look at his second point in verse 19. If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons... By whom do your sons cast them out, so they will be your judges? What does he mean? Part of it's a matter of, so you're accusing me of being in league with Beelzebub because I've done this. Do you accuse your sons the same way? Who are their sons? What does he mean by that? I thought it was their literal sons. Okay, well, how could their literal sons cast out demons? If they were some of the 70 people who could cast out demons. That's what I think, is that some of the Jesus' disciples who he gave the ability to cast out demons to were, were their sons. You know, some people think, well, these are Jewish exorcists. But I don't know that the Jews were able to cast out demons like Jesus did. God gave that power to Jews too, so it wasn't kind of an exclusive thing among Jesus and the disciples. If that were the case, it seems to me that kind of, you know, waters down whatever, you know, evidence value there was to Jesus casting out demons. So I think it's better to understand that some of the people Jesus gave power to cast out demons to were their kids. You know, they may have been some of the 12, some of the 70, some of the other people. Um, and, and it's like, are you going to say that about them too? You know, I mean, it's easy to say that about Jesus, but you, you think your sons then are in league with uh, Satan? Is that what you're trying to say? And then he says, uh, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, so, I mean, this is like an evidence. It's a demonstration that, you know, there's an armed takeover. You know, God's conquering Satan's kingdom. He says, a strong man, fully armed, guards his house. And nobody messes with his stuff. Until what? Someone stronger comes along and takes over. Yeah. So who's the stronger one who's coming mm-hmm. over, coming along and taking over? Jesus. Jesus, yeah. Who's stronger than? Satan. Yeah. Satan was guarding everything. He had all mankind under his thumb until this stronger one than he was attacked him, overpowered him, and took away some of his armor and distributed his plunder. He robbed him. Jesus is conquering. He's pushing back the frontiers of evil. He's advancing the kingdom of God. And he's conquering Satan's kingdom, Satan's demons. And... uh, you know, this is this is a major event. This is an amazing thing. Um, if you stop and think about it, you know, if Jesus had never come, then who could Satan claim as belonging to him? Everyone. Everyone. Everyone's a sinner. If Jesus didn't die, there's no forgiveness, so he claims everyone. But with Jesus' death and resurrection... Satan can't claim anybody that's covered by the blood of Jesus. So he lost out. You know, God continues to conquer more territory from Satan. This is a big uh, political coup, so to speak. And uh, and you gotta you gotta make two sides. There's a war going on. Verse twenty three. You can't you can't be on the fence. Whose side are you on anyway? And then you know. Well, let's pause here. Uh, thoughts and comments through twenty three. I just think it's a cool point in 20. It says, cast out by the finger of God, and then it goes to talk about the stronger. The finger of God is stronger than all of Satan and his army. Yeah, good point. You know who that reminds you of? 
What does that remind us of? In Exodus 8.19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So weren't there others that did miracles? I don't know if they cast out Mm. demons, but... Legitimately? I don't think so. different times. What about the time when they said they they saw some others that were... Weren't they casting out demons? Mm -hmm. Yeah! But I think they were once Jesus empowered. Okay. Are there any other miracles? I mean, there were the ones that were trying to call on. (laughs) Yeah, the Jesus that Paul (laughs) preaches. preaches. (laughs) That didn't work out so well. (laughs) Did it imply that they were ever successful? I mean, they were Jewish exorcists, but there's all kinds of exorcists in Brazil. They're not exorcising the demons that don't exist, you know. But they have all kinds of exorcisms. So I'm guessing there's plenty of them, but not the real ones. That's what I think. Um, You know, Simon the Sorcerer. I mean, there were other, I mean, obviously, magicians or whatever. <clears throat> Even in the Old Testament, though, there were, I mean, there's a few examples that's like, okay, they had some kind of power. Even if it was a magical, it was beyond normal. <laughs> I agree. Yes, I think so. Simon the Sorcerer in the New Testament would be a great example of that. But the people could tell the difference. I, th- I think, yeah, people do have powers. And for that matter... How do we know whether it's sleight of hand or real powers? I mean, when, you know, a good magician does a magic trick, it's like, huh? How did you do that? You know, so I don't know. But I don't think anybody had legitimate powers to cast out demons except Jesus and the disciples. Other thoughts? All right, so here's a guy who tried to stay neutral. You've got this unclean spirit that comes out of a man. I don't know if he was expelled or if he just decided to to leave or whatever. Um, But he passed through waterless places seeking rest. Maybe it's the idea, you know, like kind of desert places where there weren't people. And he didn't find any rest. So he came back and said, I'll go back where I came from. And when he comes back to look at the house he'd gone out of, how does he find it? Clean, neat, and empty. Clean, neat, and empty. And an empty tenement invites squatters. You know, there's nobody in this house, so what does he do? He goes and gets his friends. Yeah, he gets seven (laughs) demon buddies, and this guy's worse off than when he started. You know, there's no spiritual vacuum. If God doesn't live in us, Satan will come and and take care of the, uh, the emptiness. So, I mean, the practical lesson in that is you can't just get rid of evil. You've got to replace it with good. You know, you can't just focus on what not to do. You know, isn't that the truth? Think about how that works. You know, in our overcoming sin, do not think about a big pink elephant in that kitchen. A big pink (laughs) elephant with a long trunk and runny nose. Don't think about that pink elephant in the kitchen. Now, what are you thinking about? Trying not to think about the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You know, the more you th- try not to think about it, the more you think about it. What's the only way not to think about something? Think about something else. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if, if I get rid of all the evil in my life, but I don't put anything good back in, I just try to keep the evil out. Well, it's not going to work. i got to replace it. i got to fill it up with the Lord. Every put off in the Bible has a put on with it. Uh, so... That's that's Jesus' lesson about how to keep the demons out. Make sure you fill your life back up with good. Thoughts and comments? That has never seemed very clear, the whole section. Okay. And he's just trying to connect it with the rest, you know, the context and whatever. It just... Uh... <clears throat> I guess what throws me off is he finds it swept and put in order. Yeah. Which sounds good. Yeah. (laughs) It's neat, but it's empty. He didn't find other occupants. I think that's the point. He just found it swept and organized. Like the empty ox stall? That's what I was thinking. Me too. (laughs) I'm not sure. I think that's a different 
illustration, but yeah. Well, it does go along nicely with 23, where he says, there's only two choices, like you're either with me or against me, so mm-hmm. you're either... In Matthew, it's in a whole different context where it says this. What's the last state is worse than the first? Well, because he got seven buddies, you know, they got eight demons in the guy, not one. <laughs> I mean, you know, on the surface, all that would mean is to those that had demons and got them cast out, it's like, oh no, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Unless you fill it back up again. And it, what, if we... doesn't say that. Well, uh, I mean, I understand that, but often, often he doesn't say it. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's the implication of it. I do think you may you may say it in Matthew twelve. Yeah, in Matthew twelve, and when it comes it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. So I mean if it was occupied, he's gonna have a hard time, you know, getting himself, let alone his buddies in there too. Sometimes Jesus teaches in parables. Oftentimes. <laughs> so he doesn't always explain in detail what he means. <laughs> That's right. He makes you think about it a lot. Puzzle on it. I mean, it, on it. it even ties up to like the strong man up there. If there was someone, a stronger man in the house, the demons couldn't have come in. But it, so since they didn't come in, it means there's no one there. Mm-hmm. Good point. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's true. Okay, other thoughts? Well, now we kind of shift to Jesus and the crowd, 27 and 28. came about while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. All right, so, uh, you know, this woman is, Blessed is is your mother, and and because of you know who he was, you know what a what a wonderful thing your mother that bore you and and nursed you and all. But what's Jesus' answer to that? It's not the person I come come from; it's the person I go to. Yeah. So blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. That's that's really who to bless. And that's consistent with Jesus' attitude toward his mother. You know, he never gave her a special edge. Um, it shows us the importance of hearing and obeying. That's what we need to be doing. Those are the people that the Lord blesses. But it also shows us that we shouldn't give an overabundant amount of attention to Mary. I mean, the Catholic view, oversimplified, but I think this is their view, of Mary is... You know a son always listens to his mom. And and Mary is a lot like us. She's a woman. She understands this. She's sensitive and so forth. So if you talk to Mary, then she'll put a good word in with Jesus and you know he'll listen to his mom. I think that's kind of the, the mindset. Is that is that fair? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so. Well, doesn't this contradict that? You know... Jesus doesn't give this special edge to Mary. He gives the special edge to those who hear the word of God and observe it. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So I think those other passages do the same thing. But I think that that's really kind of the issue. Um, is, is, you know, just, it's the one who serves the Lord not the one that bore Jesus that should get the attention. Thoughts and comments? So why did this lady say that? Was I think she's impressed any, with Jesus. I mean, was there something specific that, you know... Does there have to be? Well, no, but... I mean, I can see somebody, <laughs> oh, your mother must be just such a wonderful woman. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the Catholics did that, right? So, right, exactly. I mean, so it's a natural... Oh, no, the Catholic Church. It's a common thing to do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Catholic. Well, Peter said the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> it's a woman. On this rock. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it just seems after this strange little thing with the empty house that demons come back to, that 
I'm not sure if it's saying that that specifically prompts her to say this, in which case she's, a, in one sense, a lot smarter than I am. But anyways. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, it says while he was saying these things, so I don't. That's kind of a vague, you know, statement. I don't. I thought she just got like really excited. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but it is odd too. I think if you consider Jesus's age, I don't think you know somebody that's in his thirties, early thirties. You'd say that about a mom of a younger kid, maybe, but not. No, you'd say that about you know. Would you? Yeah, I mean, somebody likes Mindy and they'd say, oh, you must have such a wonderful mother. That's right. Or even, yeah. like, something about, you know, like, oh, your parents must be so glad to have you as a child. They must be so proud of you, yeah. It could, you know, it's almost <coughs> that idea. When you're younger, but not. No. And she could have been an older woman. She, she, could she have was been in her 80s, Jesus. and so it was younger to her. Exactly. <laughs> Can't you see an old lady saying yeah, that? I can totally see an old lady saying that. <laughs> it's like Wilma got excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how about 29 to 32? As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man become be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to get the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So, Jesus is condemning this generation for seeking for a sign. I didn't mention this when we went through, but look at 16. Others detest him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. So he's responding to that now. They wanted a sign from heaven, I think, because they're trying to discredit Jesus. They're desperately looking for something he can't do. And so they kind of imply that, well, Jesus isn't given us good enough evidence. You know, we really need a sign from heaven. Uh, kind of rationalizing their unbelief. But the truth is, the problem is the attitude of this generation. You know, the problem isn't a lack of a sign. And Jesus said, I'm not going to give him any sign. You know, we can be like that. You know, well, I just, I, I believe in God if he did this or that or the other thing. Well, I don't have to believe in God. Uh, I pay, I'll pay for it. But, you know, I'll have, I don't have to. But he's given me plenty of evidence. Don't blame God for not believing it. There's, there's good reasons to. And so here, uh, he says the only sign that you'll get is the sign of Jonah. Now, what happened to Jonah? Got swallowed by whale. He was buried at sea for three days and then rose back to land. And what happens to Jesus? He's buried in the ground for three days and then he comes back. Now, it says that, just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. How was Jonah a sign to the Ninevites? Well, he preached to them, for one thing. Yeah, but the sign's connected with his three-day burial. If I remember right, when we went through Jonah once before, it there was something that, it became, it became known what had happened to Jonah somehow. I think so, and I would use this passage to prove it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jonah couldn't have been assigned to the Ninevites if the Ninevites didn't know what had happened. Right. So I think the Ninevites knew about the three-day sea burial and the resurrection, and that's why they believed in Jonah's preaching. Otherwise, why would the Assyrian people believe in one day's preaching of a single enemy prophet? So I think this is saying that Jonah was assigned to it. So, you know, look, the Queen of the South will condemn this generation. You know, she was the Queen of the South. They're Jews. She journeyed from afar. They're here. She came to see Solomon. They refused Jesus. You know, the people in Jonah's day, men of Nineveh, will condemn this generation. They responded to a lesser person preaching a lesser message based upon a lesser sign. They had so little and repented so much. 
you know, there is every reason to believe in Jesus. Don't blame your not <laughs> believing in Jesus on the lack of a sign. You know, it's kind of like God's not the one on trial. You know, if we refuse to believe in God or in Jesus, he's given the evidence. Not going to be a problem of lack of evidence. You know, it's kind of like going to a museum of masterpieces and going to, I don't know much about artists, but going to a Da Vinci painting or something like that, saying, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's not a very good painting. You know, that's, that's pretty bad. Well, who am I, yeah, who am I to say that? You know, uh, I just show that I have no appreciation for true art. You know, and and we show when we reject Jesus, ah, I don't think the evidence is very strong. We just show we have no ability to properly assess the evidence. Jesus is not on trial, we are. So, I just think he's saying... You know, you don't, guys don't need a sign. You've got it better than the Queen of Sheba and the Ninevites, and they repented at Solomon or at Jonah. How much more you guys should listen? Comments and questions? It's funny, he was giving them so many signs, too. Like, the miracles weren't those, like, why were they asking for more signs after he'd just done all these miraculous things? Because they want to find something he can't do, and then they'll talk about it for the rest of the time. Trying to divert the attention. And this generation means, like, that literal generation, the people who are right there, not some this age kind of stuff. No, I agree. Okay. Other thoughts? 33 to 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Okay. So, no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar, uh, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so those who enter may see the light. Now, where, what, what light is he talking about here? Well, I think the light is God, Jesus, and he's turned on the light. God wouldn't have lit the light if, and then, and then turn around and hidden it. I go back to Luke chapter 1. You remember what, uh, Zachariah said in Luke chapter 1 verse, uh, 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, etc. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the sunrise from on high. He, he lightens everything. And, uh, and Jesus wasn't hidden. Again, we're back to this idea, well, we need a sign. Does the sun need a sign? How do you know there's really a sun? It's light. Yeah. It doesn't, what else, what more is there than the light that you have and the warmth that it provides? You know there's a sun. And Jesus lit this lamp. And it was open. Jesus was open. His signs have been open. There's nothing else needed. What is the problem? The problem is not a lack of evidence. What is the problem? The eye. You know, the problem is a lack of vision, not a lack of brightness. He says, the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, that your whole body will also be full of light. But when it's bad, your body also is full of darkness. And watch out that the light in you is not darkness. You know, they want to blame Jesus. Well, you just need more signs. You know, we just can't believe. You just haven't given us any proof. That's not the problem. They have eye problems. They can't see. You know, good eyes will let the light come in. Bad eyes don't. <laughs> 
And so they don't have the spiritual vision to see what's right there in front of them, that Jesus is the Son of God. The problem is not a lack of light. The problem is they don't have any capacity to see the light because they blinded themselves by their prejudice and pride and all those sorts of things. So he says, watch out that your light is not darkness. Think about all the things that can blind us and keep us from seeing the true light. You know, I, I've talked about it before, but I had this friend who was totally, totally blind. He could not see light or dark. He had no idea. You know, and the sun could be out as bright as blazes. And he couldn't see it. He could feel it. <laughs> he could tell the warmth. He could tell you the sun was out. <laughs> but only by feel, not by seeing. You know, so what was the problem? His eyesight, not the sun's brightness. Um, so, you know, he wants us to have good eyesight. He wants us to have good spiritual vision. So our whole body is illuminated. So we can really see the Lord and see the truth. You know, a person with good eyesight doesn't need any more signs than what Jesus has given. He's given plenty. And if you can't see them, what good would it do to do a few hundred more signs? It all depends on how, how our eyesight is. So he says, therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the uh, lamp illumines you with its rays. So we need to have Jesus fully within us. And then we have what we need. So, you know, when when people start making excuses, well, I just really can't believe in a God like... Well, why can't you? Well, I just... There's just no evidence. Yes, there is. I don't believe it. I don't see it. Well, that's your problem. You don't have good vision. But the evidence is there. The evidence is abundant. Thoughts and comments? Jesus has lots of these little parables, doesn't he? And some of them he uses in different ways in different contexts, too. So don't just assume... Because of what the light and the lamp mean here is necessarily going to mean that everywhere else. But in this context, I think he's really saying, I've lit the lamp. I'm, the light's shining. You know, if you can't see it, you got a vision issue. Okay? 37 to 44. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. <coughs> you foolish ones. Did, did not he who made the outside of the, make the inside also? But give that which is within of charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Well, so Jesus goes to have lunch with the Pharisee. It's interesting that he's sociable even with the Pharisees. You know, I mean, would you have gone to Pharisee's house and eaten? Would you have gone to the tax collector's house and eaten? You've gone to Zacchaeus' house in Eden, uh, so forth and so on. You know, you can't reach people unless you're sociable with them. You've got to be able to talk to them. So that's an interesting thing that he even went. And he took advantage of the occasion to teach the Pharisee and the lawyers about their errors. And so we get to listen in. You know, Pharisee, he's a little surprised. What has Jesus not done? Washed himself before the meal. So, man, he's probably going to get contaminated with some kind of germs, right? Well, it's that he didn't ceremonially wash. Yes. It wasn't just he's eating with dusty hands. It's that he's eating with ceremonially impure, unclean hands, maybe kind of in a way. He's, you know, being offensive by not keeping these Jewish traditions about the hand washing. Fully 25% of the Mishnah is devoted to issues of purity. That was a huge thing to the Jews. And so they had all these rules and regulations. So, you know, uh, Jesus didn't, he didn't care about their rules and regulations. 
And so Jesus goes on to say, uh, now you Pharisees, and what does he say about him in 39 to 41? What were they doing? Making the outside look good without worrying about the inside. Yeah. Um, these days we have dishwashers. Anybody not have a dishwasher? Okay. So, when you, you wash your own dishes, then I'm assuming? Not at least, always. <laughs> at least occasionally. Do you sometimes eat on in clean dishes? I sometimes eat on clean dishes. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. When Sandra's gone, I trash the house. Um, I have to make sure she gives me enough warning. Uh, she knows she's got to let me know a few hours before she goes back. Um, but, you know, if when you do wash your dishes, do you make sure you get them clean on the outside, but you don't worry much about the inside? All the way around. Yeah, exactly. Duh. I mean, you know, if you're going to clean something, clean the inside of that thing that has the contact with the food. I don't want you to care what the outside looks at, but I'd like to have it clean on the inside. And, and, and aren't we like that spiritually? You know, we worry about what we're going to look like, what people can see on the outside. You know, what kind of impression we're going to make. How are people going to view us? What's our image like? We clean the outside and we don't worry about the inside. And that's just the wrong idea. You know, if you'll work on your character, the outside will take care of itself. But you make sure you've got a clean heart. They were worried about, you know, washing their hands instead of, you know, being clean and pure on the inside. We get we get to think about the wrong stuff, and often because we're thinking, what are they going to think about me? That's not the thing to think about. It's a lot more impress- important to be right than to look right. Now, how many how many times when children are raised do we say, uh, "Hey, don't embarrass me around this person"? You know, <laughs> you make sure you're in good behavior in this situation. We're going to church now. Now you got to, <laughs> you know, things like that, because we don't want other people to know you're, you know, a disaster. Um, and then look at 42. They're in balance. They tie these little garden herbs, disregard justice and the love of God. They worried about the little things and neglected the big ones. Now what they really should have done, verse 41, instead of tithing those things, they should have given them a charity. <laughs> Generosity will make it cleaner than any washing will. Um, but, you know, how much do we really neglect the basic principles and become really fanatical and picky about all the details? Because we feel good about ourselves. Man, I got that Anna's tithe. There's not a, there's not a, you know, a leaf of Anna's, is that what it would be? That, uh, that ever grows in my garden without me taking 10% of it and giving it to the Lord. Got that in. Well, we, we do that so often. Um, we become really obsessed with details that really don't even matter. And we miss, as he says, justice and the love of God. You know, it amazes me what we get obsessed about. You know, but I'm afraid I might have missed this. I, I, I gotta get, I gotta get this detail right. You know, I mean, do you make sure when you when you calculate how much you're going to give that you get the sense right too? You know, you wouldn't want to cheat the Lord out of you know a couple of pennies or whatever. It, you know, if that becomes our mentality in just all kinds of ways, we miss the point. So we're all worried about this little picky detail that doesn't amount to anything, and we completely don't think about love and justice. So we've got to really focus on what matters with the Lord, and then for forty three, the pride. You love the chief seats. You love the respectful greetings. You know, they wanted everybody to see them and honor them. How much do we care about being honored and respected? How important is it to us that other people recognize us? That they, they, they give us the proper respect. You know, that can be, respect can be huge. And it was for the, the Pharisees. And then, you know, in verse 44, woe to you for your like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Their hypocrisy. You know, how much of our wickedness do we cover up and make sure nobody finds out about? You know, uh, so 
if, if all of my life and what I do and say and think was exposed, whoa, wonder what that'd be like. Um, so oftentimes we're a bad influence because our wickedness is well hidden. And, and people don't even realize it at first. All right, so that's the condemnation of the Pharisees. I mean, some pretty practical points. Cleaning the exterior, imbalance, pride, and hypocrisy. Thoughts and comments on this? There's a neat uh, illustration that you can use in teaching this concept to children. You'll take two plastic cups. You'll put dirt and mud in one. And then you put them together. So the outside of one is coated with mud and the inside of the other and then without them seeing you do that, you put the two of them in front of them and said, which do you want to drink out of? And they can't see the inside until they choose the clean cup and see that it's actually, uh, you know, not the one they should have chosen. So yeah. At least it works well with third graders. It, isn't it so much that the thing we prioritize is what people can see? The thing we neglect is the heart and the real fundamental issue. That's just a really common problem for us. If as long as nobody knows it, it isn't really wrong. Isn't that almost how we act? As long as we hide it, then it never really happened. It's not true, but it's how we act. So I think this really causes the search of heart. And are we really loving the Lord and seeking to please and honor and, and, and do what His will is? Or are we just, you know, concerned about you know, what we look like. I don't know. I think we have a lot of Pharisaic tendencies. So. I, think it's, I think it's hard to be a heart-oriented person and a very results-oriented world. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I agree. Other thoughts? All right, well, I'm going to stop here tonight, and uh, depending on my mother-in-law's health, I'll be here next Thursday or not.